Hello and welcome to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. This is a show that explores the landscape of the nonprofit organization, big and small, offers some incredibly helpful information and resources, and gives nonprofits a place to share ideas and get advice. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Our show is sponsored by Sukup Strategic Solutions, offering a wide variety of services to help nonprofits maximize their impact. So let's get into solving the problems that might be plaguing your nonprofit. We have the pleasure of talking to a lot of great people here at Planet Philanthropy. It's been an outstanding conference, and one of the early presentations was from our next guest, Cherry Koshi of Endowment Partners. Good to have you with us. Thank you for being with us on Impactability. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you, I was talking with the president of our parent company, and she was saying how blown away she was at your presentation this oh, morning. Oh, she's too kind. I really appreciate it. For our audience, what, what were you talking about? So uh, really what I was talking about is how a lot of marketing research opportunities exist for nonprofits that they don't take advantage of because they're sort of in the old model of doing things like donor surveys and focus groups, which a lot of the research has indicated actually introduces more bias into market research than it gives us direction on what to do. So the quintessential example is if you ask a bunch of donors would they rather receive a print newsletter or an email newsletter, they'll tell you an email newsletter, but they won't read it. They'll actually read the print newsletter. Mm -hmm. So it's a really small example of the overall presentation that talks about what are some tools that are out there that we can use to optimize our understanding of how donors make decisions. So what are some of those tools? Share them with us. Yeah, so one of the ones I shared is uh, the idea of conjoint analysis. So rather than doing A-B testing where we say, Joe, would you like a Coke or Pepsi? Coke or Pepsi? Coke or Pepsi? The A-B testing forces this binary choice, whereas conjoint analysis says that we actually make decisions in context. So would you like a Coke or a Pepsi at eight o'clock in the morning when the Coke costs $3 and the Pepsi costs $2 and it's really hot outside? Now, under all of those conditions, which decision did you make? And now with that analysis, we can also identify what part of that decision was more important than the other. And so we get rapid results and we're able to iteratively test. And frankly, I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't launch a company. I wouldn't put out an email or a letter or do anything without doing some sort of market testing like that because it's so quick and easy to get essentially an insurance policy against what you're doing, to have some sort of direction that tells us this is what donors are more likely to engage with. So if I want to do really good email newsletters, with that in mind, what you just said, what can I do to improve what I'm doing now? So with email newsletters, One of the things that organizations have started to do today, which is great, is segmentation. So we'll send our current donors a different email than we'll send to our prospective donors, right? So we'll do that sort of segmentation, and that's helpful, that's smart to do, absolutely. But not all of our current donors, especially with large files, care about the same things. Mm -hmm. So let's say, for example, you're an arts organization, and you have Broadway, and you have dance, and you have comedy. Well, some people really just want to hear about Broadway. Some really want to hear about comedy. So you're sending the same email saying, come from away is happening in our theater. If they only care about comedy, they don't, come from away is a funny show. Sure. At parts, but it's also really sad. But they they are looking for, ha ha ha. Right, right, right. Right. right? Like some stand-up comedian Mm -hmm. and are not paying attention to your email. So through that kind of understanding of who your 
your donors, your subscribers are, you can start to modify what messages you're sending to what people, at what time, all of that. And that's going to drive engagement with your content even better. You'll, you'll note that that happens with for-profit companies all the time, right? So you're not getting the same email from Old Navy that I'm getting. You're not getting the same email from almost any company that they're, they're doing high-level sophisticated analysis to understand your buying behavior, mm -hmm. your demographic, psychographic information to customize what's coming to you. Yeah. So a really good example is uh, the, of a set of businesses that's really figured this out is car dealerships. They're, they're going to send you targeted offers yes. for the type of vehicle that they think is best for you. And they're not going to send you the Ferrari, even though, like, I want to, I, I, I would love to have a Ferrari. I, yes, sir. <laughs> the Ford dealership knows I can't afford it. I'd have to move the Lamborghini out of the ring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe exactly. I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> so are you saying that it's like these companies know that they're not going to send me the annual bra sale because obviously I don't buy them so they're going to send me something because they, they already know demographically I'm a guy I buy guy stuff end of story so they know so much about you it would it's mind boggling how much they know about you they know things about you that you don't know the quintessential example of that is that Target sent a mailer to a house saying hey you're expecting here are some coupons for you know new baby gear and all of that they, and it was addressed to a daughter in the house. The father sees this and gets irate, calls Target corporate and says, how dare you send this to my daughter? She's not pregnant or whatever. Target knew that the daughter was pregnant before the dad did. Wow. Because of her search history, because of, uh, like on the Target website, they knew that she was pregnant and that she was expecting and, and he didn't. And so they of course apologized, they made it right, you know, all of that, but the amount of data available about us is, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, so now again, let's translate that to nonprofits. Yeah. First of all, it's hard to get all of that maximum amount of data and, and analysis, but start us on the young side, on the early side. How can we, how can we get there? How yeah. can we, you know? So I guess what I would say is actually it's quite easy to get the data. It's really hard to put into action what you're going to do with it. So the data is all out there. You probably have in your file a bunch of data that you could use. It's connecting the dots between the data and then also what external sources of data are things that you would actually use. Mm -hmm. So there are services that can append psychographic information to your file. They can append all kinds of things to get closer to who these folks are. We can also get down to like IP address. One of the things that I've done in the past is actually, we might not have an email address for you, or we might, doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. We can target your IP address at your house because we have your physical address and serve up ads on any website based upon your IP address. So if you have You've never visited our website before, but you have. we know where you live. I can say, Joe lives at 123 Main Street. I'm going to target that IP address. And so if he goes to CNN, he's going to see an ad for our organization. That's amazing. Those are simple, pretty inexpensive things that are out there that organizations could do. I think when it comes to organizations, they have to understand where they are, what human and financial resources they have in right. order to be able to execute on some of these strategies. Good point. I hate the snake oil salesman approach to like, this is going to raise you $10 million. Like, maybe, 
if you can actually execute on it. Mm -hmm. So there's not a whole lot of virtue to having a bunch of data sitting on a computer if you're not able to say, based upon these factors, we're going to treat these people differently. Mm -hmm. One very simple thing to do is actually to look at the distance the person is from your organization physically. A firm did a data analysis and they said, these are people who live 90 miles or more away from your nonprofit. So they're probably not coming for a tour. They're probably not gonna do a site visit. If you do an event, it's highly unlikely that they show up. Mm -hmm. So let's take that group of people and treat them differently. Have a different donor journey for them than you would with the people who live within 90 miles. Yeah. Very simple, straightforward strategy that literally anyone can do by sorting by zip code in their data file. That is exactly what I was looking for in our conversation because to me, what you just said is something that anyone listening today, no matter what your staff size is like, no matter what, you can do that simple zip code. Why are you sending, why are you taking the time to send to X when X lives in the next state and is probably not gonna come to your, your gala? Right, and the thing to remember is if you invite me to your event two states over, what that tells me, I, there's a level of, it's the thought that counts, but after a while, I'm like, I, don't you know where I live? Yeah, you're not paying attention. Right. And do you really just not know me as your donor? Which mm -hmm. is now kind of sad. Yeah. It's unfortunate. So like, if you, I'm, I would highly suggest that you design a donor strategy for those folks. It's not just ignore them, don't invite them to events. It's how can we talk to the folks that live two states over about how they can be engaged from a distance and mm -hmm. recognize, Joe, we know that you live in Chicago. We're grateful for your support from all the way over there. We want you to, to engage with us in this way. We want you to be able to zoom in to see this thing or, you know, whatever it might be. Or participate in the auction. Yeah, yeah. Online. Yeah. There, yeah. Whatever it is, that, but we're intentional about it. We're recognizing who you are, where you are, all of those types of things. Is there success in telling that person two states over that, you know, We'd love to have you, but if you're not able to attend, Absolutely. still, we'd, we'd like to have a gift. Absolutely. Use, Absolutely. It, use it as a way to still solicit a gift. Yes, absolutely. So with those folks that were 90 miles away or, or further away, we would always say, here's an invitation to this event. We know that it's unlikely that you'll be able to attend, but here's a way that you can donate. Here's a way that you can watch online, whatever the case may be. If you are ever in town, please let us know. We'd love to specially do something for you because we know that you couldn't make it to this event. Outstanding. I got to tell you, that to me, that's worth the, the price of admission, as they say, yeah. because I think it's a fantastic idea. Cherry and Koshi has been our guest from Endowment Partners, and we could talk for hours because I, I, I love where you're going with a lot of these thoughts, and what we like to do on Impactability is give those, those little food for thought nuggets, and you've done that for us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We're going to take a short break, a double feature today. When we come back, we're going to talk all about crypto, what you know, what you don't know, what you need to know. So stay close for that. You're listening to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm Joe Turner. We'll be right back. One of the biggest challenges facing nonprofits today is securing grants. Where do I find information on grants? How do I write a grant? And how do I submit the grant? And then, of course, the dreaded midnight deadlines. Hi, I'm Teresa Stos, and I have been there and done that. At Sukup Strategic Solutions, we have a team of expert grant writers with years of experience writing hundreds of grants for nonprofits just like yours. 
Visit our website today at sukupstrategicsolutions.com and schedule a free consultation about your grant writing needs. That's S-O-U-K-U-P strategicsolutions.com. Let's work together and get the grant that your nonprofit deserves. Welcome back to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm Joe Turner, your host, and as promised, today is a double feature. And this half of the program, we're going to talk all about crypto. And our guest to talk all about it is Pat Duffy from The Giving Block. And Pat, I wanted to know all about crypto myself. Welcome to Impactability. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Now, I know crypto is like the next big thing, and I know nothing. I've heard of Bitcoin. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's all I've got. So help us out a little bit. First, kind of give us a little background, and then from there, we're going to kind of take it a little further and, and show how this can help nonprofits who are in the same boat as I am. I haven't heard of it, kind of scared of it, don't know what to do, yeah. you know, all that. It's, it's pretty common still that like most people walk up to us, they're like, I don't know what this is, I don't get it. The main thing I guess nonprofits should know is it's a lot more common than they think it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's more kind of like the big thing right now that is the, the next big thing. There's 300 million people using it. Coinbase in the US has twice as many users as Fidelity. It's, it's more kind of like an age and then like social community, demographic lack of overlap than it is um, a lack of adoption. Like the, there's 300 million people using it worldwide. It's like one of the more popular payment methods already at this point. And the, the main thing nonprofits need to know is like you don't have to invest in it to accept it. That's like if, if you're exploring getting into it, a lot of nonprofits think they need to make an investment in it. They worry about the volatility. They worry about the long-term sustainability of different cryptos, which would be the big one. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. It's very similar to stocks. People are investing in it. Millions of people have it. If they give it to you specifically as a five hundred one c three, they don't pay taxes on it. So if you have a donor who wants to give you a million dollars of Bitcoin, you go, hey, we don't take that, but we'll take something else. They're going to walk away because they're not going to eat a $200,000 tax bill. For right. No That's a great point. I'm glad you pointed that out because I've heard that about crypto, that uh, the whole tax advantage, if you will. And I think it's important to kind of talk more about that angle because, again, as nonprofits, many of us don't have this big knowledge base about crypto and how it works and what it is and all of that. But I like the comparison with stocks and it kind of works the same way. If I'm talking to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm talking to a donor that wants to give me some stocks Mm -hmm. as a gift, great, thank you very much. We hold on to the stocks, stocks go up, life is good. So you're saying crypto kind of works the same way? If you want to hold it, you can. But like the vast majority of nonprofits, when they accept stocks as a gift or any non-cash asset, they just liquidate them at the point of acceptance. If you're liquidating the stocks when they come in, if you're liquidating any asset you're receiving, you don't have to deal with any of that volatility. Now, if you want to hold it, that's fine. Then you obviously need to be a little bit more literate and have a financial plan. Mm-hmm. I don't think you want to just hold things because people give it to you. People can donate a silo of corn, you know, to a nonprofit. It's probably not in your endowment plan. You're probably going to liquidate, right? and sell that through someone like Renaissance Charitable and just keep it moving. So if you feel like you're interested in holding crypto, then obviously it takes a little bit more investigation. Which ones do you want to hold in what order and why? But for 99% of nonprofits taking crypto, all they need to know is other people are investing in it. If they send it to you, they have an enormous tax incentive. Where when they send it to you, it immediately sells for cash. Then all you have to do is like understand how to account for it. And if you want to, how to fundraise from that community to earn new donors using your crypto acceptance, which is extraordinarily popular once they have the tools to do it. What would you suggest to nonprofits listening to us saying, okay, 
I, I'm listening to what you're saying. What is their what is their move? So like the the one thing I would say is like you can't not look into it. Like it's at this point it's crazy. Yeah. It's a, it's crazy to not have a website. It's crazy to not think about mobile optimizing it. It's crazy to not accept like, the most tax incentivized donation for tens of millions of Americans. Like it's just not a thing that you should not at least look into. So we, we tell endowment officers, for instance, at universities, and the endowment officers will come to us and they'll be like, hey, I'm like treasury management, should we be looking into this as an investment, like diversifying into it using our own capital? Mm -hmm. And our answer is always like, well, it's the best performing asset class in the last 10 years, it's the best performing asset class in the last five years. It doesn't mean that right now it's not overvalued or like now might not be the time for you to go out and buy some, but if you haven't looked at it, and your job is to manage like a big pile of money as effectively as possible, that's crazy. Yeah. Right? It's been around 12 years, it's older than Instagram. You should have explored having an Instagram account by now. You should have explored accepting crypto. So like, that's the main thing, it's like, bite the bullet and do a little bit of Googling. Figure out what it means for your nonprofit, how big the opportunity is, and how you might be able to fundraise it, and yeah. then decide where that fits in your other innovative priorities, and execute accordingly. Is this something that nonprofits should market? Depends on the nonprofit. Okay. So, this is like we're at a conference, so this is a perfect example. I can't tell you how many sessions you walk into where they'll sit the American Cancer Society on a stage and then they'll be like, we tweet five times a week and we get a billion dollars. You know, it's like, because you have two million Twitter followers. Right. You know, so you need to understand like, what are you good at? What does your existing audience look like? And then what are your audience priorities? Some nonprofits get into crypto because average users, late 20s, early 30s, with a higher average income than any city in America, and like a lot of millionaires. Like there's a lot of capital in here and they want to get younger. They don't have any young donors. So they understand they're learning fundraising techniques and like individual giving practices for young donors for the first time. They're not trying to use the best practices from the existing demographic they're already serving. And they go into that with a you know clear eye. Yeah. And they try to figure out, okay, we're going to be using Twitter. We're going to be getting on Reddit. We're going to be... If you don't know how to do those things, you need to understand there's going to be a bridge to cross. If you already have a younger donor demographic, you're in Silicon Valley, like if the stars already aligned, then it would be wild to not be marketing the fact that you take crypto. But if you're like a foundation and you just want to make it available to donors on your website, you don't really do marketing in that way, for like an individual giving sense, you shouldn't be creating entirely new best practices with no target in mind simply to tap into a donor demographic if you're not already doing that for like your regular individual giving program. Mm -hmm. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, totally. If you're bad at Twitter right now for regular fundraising, you're not going to be good at it tomorrow when you try to do it you know, for crypto donors. So right, right. You need to, right. what am I already good at? And if you're not good at it, you have to understand like you're learning all this stuff from scratch. Learning it's curve. It's going to take a little bit of time. Yeah, sure. learning curve there. I think the most important question now that you've talked me into it, now that I'm interested, now that I realize, okay, I got to find out what this thing is, how does it work? Yeah, so there's two questions in there. Like, how does crypto work? And right. then, like, how does crypto acceptance work? Mm -hmm. Crypto, the two things that nonprofits should know about it is like, one, scarcity is baked in. Like, why do people invest in it? Why is it a good tool? Bitcoin's been around for 12 years now. There's never been other uh, units of Bitcoin injected onto the network. The code is written in a certain way where you can't add more units. So it has a natural scarcity like gold. So for something like dollars or even stocks, you can do splits and you can make more units of a share and that can devalue whatever it is you're holding. It can't be devalued by an injection of supply. So you, there's a limited set number of these cryptos and every time you buy them, you know that that's unchanging right. because it uses blockchain. So that's there, cool. There's a hundred of them. There's yep. no more. There will they never will be never any, be anymore. any more. Bitcoin. So the yep. one was worth X, now it's worth Y, tomorrow it'll be worth Z, that kind of thing. If demand grows, the supply will never 
grow in tandem. So the value of the units people invest in have a good chance of going up. If people use it as a store of value, and it's a good store of value because you can't make more. The other reason it's a good store of value is you can't change transaction patterns. So those two things are the main reasons people put money into crypto. They go like, you know, it's vaporware, it's not backed by anything. The reason it's different than something like the US dollar is most US dollars don't actually exist. Mm -hmm. If everyone went to the bank today and tried to take the money out, it's not there. It's just numbers on a spreadsheet. It's called pretty fractional much. reserve. So yep. pretty much banks are allowed to pretend there's more money than there is. You give them the dollars, physical, they send it somewhere, and then they say that it's at the bank, but it's not. And they do that over and over again, so they have artificial records. With Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, you can't do that. So you can't alter any transaction records again. It's been around 12 years. There's never been a transaction record change, ever. You can't cook the books. So if you're holding something like a Bitcoin, there will never be any more of it, and no one can deny that you own it. It's the only asset in the world that works that way. So that's why people sit money in it. They know that like, if I park money here, it seems like a good bet that it'll go up because more people will want it five years from now than want it now. And no one will ever be able to say, you don't have it, or mm -hmm. it's sitting somewhere where it isn't, or your account records don't exist. It's a perfect blockchain record keeping system. So those are the two main reasons, like what is it, how does it work? And then for nonprofits, all you need to know is for those reasons, and then other potential investment strategies, people are buying this stuff. And then when people give you crypto through a copy and paste widget that you pop on your site, it hits that account, the account goes, hey, there's a balance. It just sells it, like as if you logged into a Fidelity account or you're selling your stocks. And when you log in, you just have US dollars that get pushed to your bank account via ACH. Fascinating. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit on the way there. So yeah. you don't need individual, you don't need a new campaign on day one. Search engine optimization, huge from the jump. Like if you just, if anyone who's listening goes on the internet, searches donate Bitcoin and it puts kids or whatever. You'll see Save the Children, you'll see No Kid Hungry, probably Children International, groups like that. Having a donate crypto page that has like search engine optimized copy, let it get stumbled upon. People search donate Bitcoin, I guess, specifically more than donate stocks and it's been that way since 2018 wow. it's worth being there and like that's easy transfer and then there's existing campaigns like a crypto giving tuesday those are the things you want to plug into and then once you're sitting there that's kind of like your passive system where it's just like stumble upon or active strategies you're running an ad like that's how they come in then there's like you can create moments and opportunities for donors to come meet you specifically you can run an nft drop where all the proceeds go to the nonprofit, or you can run, like you said, an awareness day, crypto fundraising day. If you do end up doing it, it tends to generally be a good strategy from a marketing standpoint, because people are still so fascinated. Sure, sure, by absolutely. It. It's, it's a really powerful differentiator and marketing tool. Go ask Coca-Cola, will they match Bitcoin donations? And they're like, Coca-Cola doesn't want to do Bitcoin. It's like, no, no, when someone gives you $100 of Bitcoin, ask Coca-Cola if they'll give you $100. Nothing changes about what they're doing. Just right. ask them if they will, and then if you can market it. And they almost always say yes. And then it's like Coca-Cola is matching Bitcoin donations. And like suddenly that's a news story, like Bloomberg. It's, yeah. Anyway, it's a, it's a very powerful marketing tool. It takes some work to leverage it, obviously, but it tends to be a useful differentiator and a good way to get the brand out. There are times that I do this program that I am just like floored with the information. And Pat, you've done it again. I mean, this is, this is really great information. And we really want the nonprofits who listen, just 
look into this if you're not. Just start doing the homework and yeah. then find out more. And, and this is just another level of fundraising, basically. Yep. It's one of many things. And innovation is a muscle group. It's like, if you're not doing anything interesting ever, you're probably going to find accepting Bitcoin like confusing when you first start reading about it. But like accepting crypto, looking at things like Venmo, other payment methods, optimizing your website, finding new ways to convert, experimenting with different social media platforms, like all of these are ways to keep up. So it's important to look into it. Make a list of innovation priorities, experiment a little bit, put them in order, see what works, see what doesn't. It's definitely something that should be on the menu. Good stuff. Pat Duffy is with The Giving Block, and we thank you for your time here on Impactability, and we hope you had a good conference. And we're going to be talking again. I want to, I want to pick this conversation up in a couple of months to see how some of the nonprofits that are listening will take their feedback and then come back to you, and, and we'll keep it going. And we, we want people to look into this. Yeah, let's do it. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Time once again for another edition of Coach's Corner where we take the questions that you ask us and we ask our impact coaches for the answers. And the catch, of course, is they only have five minutes to answer the question. We're still going through some of the questions that we received at Planet Philanthropy 2022, including this one. Hi, my name is Tracy Anderson. I'm the Executive Director of Advancement with Florida School of the Deaf and the Blind. A lot of our donors are... Um, of the older generation and a lot of them don't have a need for computers so other than reaching out to the donors via you know snail mail how would you reach them let me repeat that that was tracy anderson the executive director of advancement at the florida school of the deaf and blind her question many of her clients are elderly have no need for computers so they don't have them and other than reaching out to donors with snail mail because obviously they don't have emails what's another way to reach out to them and now to answer the question, we've got our impact coach, Deborah Haley. Deborah, you have to admit, this is a really good question. Remember, on Coach's Corner, you only have five minutes to answer the question. Deborah, your five minutes begins right now. Thank you, Joe. I love this question. And it's just special being able to um, reach out to the seniors. And it's going to be better to try to do it where they're gathered together. So I'm looking at like a retirement community, retirement center, or community for like 55 plus, where you can go in and engage with the seniors all at one time and kind of build their enthusiasm. Seniors are all about, you know, that relationship, that time spent together, having a conversation, or think about some goodies as well that you could bring along. So as you think about that visit, um, engaging with the activities coordinator or the leader of a group, Another thought would be to touch base with senior groups that might be at churches. Wherever you're finding them gathered together, they would love to have a choir come and sing to them. You've got a children's choir, an adult choir, a singing group, and it doesn't have to be anything special in terms of voice quality, just the fact that they're there and they're enthusiastic and they're sharing. At the holidays, bringing a small baked good or plate of cookies, gift cards, just, you know, giving a card as a gift and maybe have them drawn by children, having them delivered by the children or doing a craft together with the kids or with adults. So there's just many ways to engage. And as you're doing that, speaking about the nonprofit and what they're all about and the importance and the impact on the community and the next generation 
and um, just really engage the seniors from their hearts and um, see where that leads. It could be a donation and possibly a volunteer opportunity with the seniors to come in and be a part of the nonprofit activities. So those are um, some ideas, and it's not your usual way of soliciting, but I think it's going to be very effective with that group. That is a great way to answer that question, Deborah. You're absolutely right. Those little ways that you can reach out of the ordinary, that you can reach that audience is a great way and goes a long way too. We've got to thank Tracy for her question that she gave us at Planet Philanthropy. And of course, Deborah, thank you very much for being our impact coach today on Impactability. You're welcome, Joe. I was glad to be a part of it. If you've got a question for Coaches Corner, we want to hear from you. Email them to us at impactcoaches at impactability.net. Again, that's impactcoaches at impactability.net. And if you want to reach me, my email address is joe.turner at impactability.net. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and that way you'll get new episodes downloaded just as soon as they come out. Also, please give us a review or a rating so that your peers in the nonprofit industry can find us as well. I'm Joe Turner. Thanks for listening, and thank you for all you do to make the world a better place through your nonprofit.